It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! Yeah, baby. Here we are. It's Monday. Good Monday. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hello, folks in the chat room. I am here to welcome our special guest today, Tracy and Vance Marino. They are very longtime taxi members, and we haven't kicked them out yet because we love them. <laughs> and the Who's authors that? of the brand new book. <laughs> Others of the brand new book. Hey, that's my song. Oh, look, it matches the sign right behind them. Oh, wow. What do you know about that? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, they're songwriters, composers, producers who've been wildly. Oh, I forgot this. Hey, that's my song. A guide to, uh, guide to getting music placements in film, TV, and media. Anyway, they are, in fact, songwriters, composers, producers who've been wildly successful placing their music, uh, placing their more than 3,000 music compositions in various media. They are signed with over 60 different production music libraries and music publishers, and their music is heard daily across the globe. Welcome, Tracy and Vance. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... First of all, I, as I told you the other day, and I re-mentioned today, I bought the book, um, <laughs> and I, I, I read the book. I spent, I don't know, like around six, maybe six and a half hours over the weekend reading the book, and, and here, I'll show you. Here's my evidence. Oh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and, you know, underlining dog-earing pages and stuff, but I want to do something I don't think I've ever done before, but there's a really good story that... I personally loved that's in the introduction of the book and I'm gonna read it to our audience now and then we'll get into the whole thing and yes Liz just posted the link to the book uh, in the chat room so about should we get our blankets and pillows and some milk and cookies yeah there you go well it's not that long and it's not boring um anyway halfway through the introduction they say so why listen to us we were struggling full-time musicians uh who'd played extra gigs and finally scraped up enough money to go to a music convention known as the taxi road rally <laughs> truncated applause um shyly whoops i'm losing my place we had no idea what to expect Shyly, we sat in the ballroom listening to various speakers, afraid to talk with anybody, but we enjoyed the experience. I think they put that in there just to make me happy. <laughs> However, one panel titled Taxi Success Stories was so life-changing, it put our music career on a completely different course. We listened to a musical montage by Matt Hurt, who was, who was and arguably still is one of Taxi's most successful members. We'd seen the ads in music magazines featuring Matt and watched his videos, uh, but we still had our doubts. We listened intently to Matt's Latin music, an Asian cue and his happy inspirational track, and we were moved by his high quality intensity, um, heart pounding chase music. Uh, Matt wrote in so many different genres and it was all great. As his music reel ended, we looked each other in amazement because at that exact moment, we both knew that was what we always wanted to do. We hadn't even known this was a possible career path. This was our destiny. This will be easy. We'll be rich. Oh no, that was supposed to, it was, it was, it was supposed to be that one, sorry. No, you got it right. <laughs> uh, the long and winding road. Uh, 
This journey may take many years. It took more than seven years before we even made a dollar and two more years before we got our first BMI royalty statement, which was a total of 200 bucks between the two of us. During the first nine years, we spent thousands of dollars on studio equipment and software, going to music conventions, buying dozens of how to write songs book, song books, um, and the life-saving book, Producing in the Home Studio with Pro Tools uh, by David Franz taking recording classes, treating music industry people to coffee or lunch. That was your first mistake. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. And networking, which I want to talk about later because you guys are the king and queen of networking. Our family saw we'd gone off the deep end. They may have been right and needed some serious intervention. However, this was and still is a journey. And we've learned a lot on this journey, good and not so good, from every music industry person we've met. So much, in fact, that we wanted to share our story and knowledge with you so you can perhaps avoid some of the pitfalls that held us back for many years. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. I like that you included that. You're welcome. Um, looking back, we wouldn't change anything. And even though we had a mountain of rejections and frustrations in those early years and still get them from time to time, the trade-off was we met some incredibly helpful people and we become, who've become our trusted resources trusted sources, sorry, and confidants. Uh, Matt Hurt ended up becoming a dear friend. With Matt, in 2011, we started a monthly LA hang group, a think tank support group. I'd be more of a support group. <laughs> uh, let's see, a support group of like-minded composers and songwriters from around the world that still exist today. Matt would offer encouragement with a phrase we still use, you need to have superhuman patience. He was right. Many times when we were on the brink of giving up, we'd recite Matt's words of wisdom. We'd hang in there and to our amazement, something wonderful would happen. Uh, then there was the magical day when we both exclaimed, hey, that's our song and it's in a feature film. We want you to be able to say, hey, that's my song as well. It's an incredible feeling. Uh, it's our sincere hope that you read this book knowing that if we can be successful at licensing our music, you can too. So congratulations once again on writing a really, really, really good book. Unbelievably comprehensive. Um, like I said, I went cover to cover as evidenced wow. by the tabs in there. And I wasn't like skimming. I, was, I actually had to read to formulate some of these questions. <coughs> Sorry, I got a, a frog in my throat. So um, got that covered. Okay. My premise for today's show is that nearly every person watching this episode is hoping to hear you disclose that one magical key to earning income with their music through licensing. In your opinion, what is that magical key that unlocks the door to sync success? Working your tail end off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's that easy. <laughs> yeah, it's really that easy. Just go to the taxi rally and you're done. Um, you know, <laughs> really, uh, so many things you have to be, let's face it, you have to write good music. That's number one. And then you have to know how to make it placeable, marketable, and we can talk about that because that's really important. Have a great title. I think most of our songs get chosen because our titles, we really spend a lot of time thinking about a title. It sounds ridiculous, but when we're done, we'll spend probably two hours listening to the songs. We do collections, usually 10 or 12, and it it's painful sometimes. And I collect titles. I have about 40,000 titles 
and he Vance will still not be happy. He'll say, "No, we can it doesn't, do better." Yeah, we can do better. It doesn't quite fit. So it's it's a lot of uh, just knowing what genre you're writing in, how to describe it, keywords, and things like that. I think if there's one answer, and there isn't one, by the way, but <laughs> right, looking for one that gets close, it's research. Yeah, um, and, and and knowing because there are different ways to go about writing any kind of music you can write whatever you want and then you end up with something and say okay what can i do with this and maybe you're lucky and there there's there's a place where you can monetize that but um that approach doesn't work well for us so our approach was okay where's where do we want this to end up let's listen to the kind of music that's there find out who gets the music there and and analyze more deeply um the music that is being used and, and, and that's be, become a lot easier to do, um, you know, because, you know, it used to be if you're just watching broadcast TV or uh, cable before there was DVR, um, you had to catch it the one time through or you missed it. And you couldn't stop the credits at the end to see who was involved in the project. You couldn't listen. You couldn't watch that scene again to listen to the music. But now we have so much technology available to us when it comes to watching the show, watching it again and listening. Um, but also go to, to websites and, and go to the, the websites of the companies, sync agencies, production music libraries, and listen to their music and their right. research and, using, and use some of those uh, tracks, those songs and instrumentals as reference tracks. That, that is where we really learned a lot. Yeah. You know what blows, my, what blows my mind is people who say, I've cut the cord, I don't watch TV anymore. I watch Netflix, I binge on Netflix, but yeah, most of the time what you're binging is years old already. So you're listening to music that w was selected by an editor of Music Soup three, four, five, six, seven years ago. You're not staying on the cutting edge. And by limi limiting yourself to only TV series, you're not hearing news of people, oh, I don't watch the news anymore. You need to watch the news, just ignore what they're saying and just listen to the music and how it's used. Watch everything you can to understand how music is used. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why it's playful music in film, TV, and media. Media is a broad term uh, it, because if you pay attention, there's music uh, on, on the internet, uh, in, in uh, YouTube ads, yeah. uh, when yeah. you're walking around a shopping mall, yeah. when, you're, when you're on hold. Infomercial, yep. websites, podcasts, we get all of that, thousands and thousands. Toys, of games. Yeah, we're in a bunch of toys and, and board games even that have music and video games. So it's Slot free. machines. Yeah, we were in a slot <laughs> machine. We actually saw it in, in a casino here. <laughs> but it's surreal sometimes where your music can end up and you don't even know. Right. You just have Not to, to mention foreign countries yeah i love it when taxi members say to me i didn't even know there was a place called slovenia and i just made two dollars and 16 cents because my music was played on a tv show there i love that well one of our recent bmi statements three quarters of our royalties came from outside of the u.s and they started that journey at least a year to a year and a half ago before they hit your statement maybe right. long maybe even like two years ago um Okay, so first and foremost uh, is the music, of course. Uh, for decades, I've been preaching the gospel of most of the time, it's not about writing the best song or the best instrumental cue because that's a reflex for all musicians, and I certainly understand it. It's really about creating music that's usable or placeable or marketable, and you guys talk quite a bit about that in the book. Can you please explain to the people watching what being marketable and usable and placeable is. 
You know, that is one of the most difficult things we had to think about for the book, frankly, because it is, it's always changing. And what's on the radio today is going to be linked, let's face it. And a lot of people are, are chasing those kind of um, pop songs. We don't do that, though. We write more evergreen music, and that tends to get placed a lot. We use um, real instruments like ukulele and guitar. Um, and and kind of do hybrids that seems to work really well for us but it's making it editor friendly with edit points helps when you go to write your music it's arranging that's what makes it marketable if it's just looping and it's the same all the way through that's just going to be so boring and no one will use that so it's, right. it's like those kind of techniques and we talk about arranging you don't hear about arranging very often anywhere so we spent vance loves arranging he's always studied arrangers kind of subconsciously all his life um we got to meet lee holdridge who did arrangements for john denver and we he was amazing and, and everyone thinks about string arrangements and things like that but it really makes a difference with your music well, something to think about, too. Uh, hang on one second, guys. Can you bring up, I'm bringing up your level on this end, but your level's still fairly low. The audience is commenting. So I'm bringing you up here, but can you get your mic a little closer? Sure. You can just get in. Well, then they get hear yeah. the video, though. <laughs> All right. Is that better? I hope so. We're, I just brought you up. COVID for three weeks. We had COVID and um, so our voices are still really ah. <laughs> so what, what I was going to say is that one of the things to think about when you're writing music for sync is that um, in, in, uh, there are certainly some scenes where your music is up front. It's a montage. There's no other audio going on. But most of the time, they're going to talk over it. So you have to write your music so that it's not the star of the show, that, that it, it can be talked over. And it, it, it's a different way of, of, of writing. For instance, um, we guitar players, it's like, okay, w w when's my solo? I, 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 I can play 17 notes in two seconds, just give me a shot. Um, and, and there are certainly times when, when that comes in handy, but yeah, but most of the time, the virtuosity is not as important as is, is, is the vibe there. If it's rock music, you just want aggressive, I mean, it's probably gonna be used for sports or, or, or something like that. And it's, it's just about getting that feel. And it's not about playing a bunch of notes. It's mostly about a driving rhythm, uh, a, a simple melody or motif that maybe repeats and has variations. But it's not about the the, the noodley solos. That that doesn't. I think those you can find those in production music libraries, but they don't get placed as much as as just a straightforward, um, non-distracting, aggressive strumming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hang on one sec. I want to go back to the word evergreen that you use because you know what it means. I'm not so sure everybody else does. Plus, my air conditioner just clicked off and I want to make it cooler in here because this topic is so hot. I'm sweating. So uh, <laughs> if you would start explaining um, what evergreen means, I'm going to go adjust my air and I'll be back in 20 seconds. Okay, good. That's all that hot air in there. <laughs> um, evergreen means that it's something that the the type of music it is, it can always be used. In other words, singer-songwriter is generally evergreen. There might be some different ways to phrase it or different types of lyrics and language used, but if it's a guitar or vocal, that's an evergreen type of song. It, it's used in all different types of shows, unless it's hard sports or some kind of hard-hitting thing. But a lot of times they just need a simple piano and vocal or guitar and vocal, and, and those get we get those a lot. Another way to think about evergreen is it's kind of the opposite of trendy. 
trendy almost by definition. It's of this time. It's new. It's fresh. And but the problem is, give it a year, two, three, and then it's not new. It's being replaced by something else. And so now it becomes da da dated. Dated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about how you come up with stuff that's evergreen that doesn't get dated because evergreen does, you're, you're right it, it walks a fine line between you know it's got to be hip enough that it doesn't sound not current and yet it can't be so hip that it's unhip a year and a half from now and it remains evergreen but at the same time you're you're walking this balancing or doing this balancing act of having it not become dated any advice on how to do that well, we, we prefer this type of music just because that's our wheelhouse. And yet some people are really good doing the, the pop music and they're on the cutting edge and they have the cutting mixing techniques and all. But And we can do that too. We love pop music. We listen to it all the time, pop and country and all the charts. We know all the charting. But for us, it just resonates with us because we like that. That's one of our favorite genres. So we've picked happy, positive music as kind of our thing in our wheelhouse. Although we just did a trap metal beats project and uh, it's getting used for sports and things like that, which you wouldn't think we would do that, um, but we do. And for us, it's just using, like I said, those kind of men and guitar and ukulele. Yeah, it, it, in general, organic acoustic instruments, and there are certainly exceptions to this, but in general, the organic acoustic instruments are less likely to become dated. But we'll do uh, things like um, experiment with um, maybe mixing techniques or just doing different kinds of mixtures. We'll put two kind of unusual, like a bazooki and a glockenspiel together. Or, you know, we've done that, the Jerry Goldsmith kind of thing. And right. you come up with really interesting things where people go, wow, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds kind of cool. Or it's like a, a bazookenspiel. Um, <laughs> so, Vance, before before you mentioned about the, you know, uh, that's a real problem for a lot of people. And I understand it. Believe me, I'm not putting anybody down. I'm not being insensitive to musicians or songwriters. Creative people have a natural urge, a really strong drive, a, a compulsion to try and do their best and make something that's spectacularly good that they want people to hear, that they can be proud of. And yet for production music, oftentimes the, the rule of thumb is simpler is better. Um, how as an accomplished guitar player, and both of you are highly educated musicians with years of schooling, how were you able to put the, I can do this, I can do that, I can do anything part of you away and create music that's simple, but by being simple, much more usable in the world of of, of TV and film, how did you how did you squash that monster? <laughs> well, we just realized that again, reference tracks. When when I listen to the, for instance, if, if we're researching rock, um, I would listen to watch sports, which I do anyway, uh, or um, <laughs> other types of shows that use rock music, and notice well, what are they using? And, and it may be that within an instrumental rock cue, that there might be a, a basic riff that it starts off with, and it goes to a B section, that it comes back to the A, and they might do the noodley solo. That might actually be in the track, um, but that is in, in all likelihood, most of the time, few exceptions, but most of the time, that noodley solo part is not what they're going to use. And so I thought, well, why would I bother trying to 
you know, practice it so I can play, play it perfectly and then edit the heck out of it so that it sounds impressive. <laughs> they're not going to use that part anyway. They're just going to use that, 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 that. That's what they're going to use. Yeah. Why, why, why bother with, with, the, with the rest of it? Uh, so I well, guess to answer the question, laziness. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what it says on his license plate in his car. Uh, lazy, right? <laughs> Black plate, yellow writing, lazy. Uh, no, you're anything but lazy. I know you well enough to know that. Um, I've been preaching to anybody who will listen for the last 30 years that emotion is at the core of virtually every successful piece of music created for sync and honestly for the record side of the industry as well. And by emotion, I don't mean emotion null. That's, that would fall under the broad heading, but people get confused with emotion for music versus emotional and they assume that everything needs to tug at your heartstrings bring a tear to your eye that everybody can relate to that which is true to some extent but there are tons of other emotions that have little or nothing to do with tugging on your heartstrings or making listeners cry can you please list off some of the more frequently uh, requested emotions or moods that in both songs and instrumentals that work for sync and i want everybody to know this is one of the things, hopefully I can find this in a hurry. <laughs> Damn, I should have used bigger tabs. Here we go. Appendix E. There we go, wow. Appendix E. Uh, they have an extremely thorough uh, appendix for keywords for mood, feel, and the vibe of music. And they break them down into some major food groups and then refine it under the, the banner of those food groups. So first one's extremely positive, next is positive, the next is slightly positive, like, oh, I'm happy your mother's coming to town. <laughs> uh, <laughs> neutral, um, when is she going home? Slightly negative, is your dad coming too? Um, really <laughs> negative, I hate that SOB, extremely <laughs> negative. What do you mean he died? No, obviously those are all just me being silly, but I really like the fact that you did that with extremely positive, positive, slightly positive, neutral, slightly negative, negative, and extremely negative. It, it, it's like a, whatever kind of meter that goes, like a phase meter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I really want to stress the point that emotion doesn't, always mean emotional and you're and people are probably overlooking opportunities that they could just kill it so name some of those emotions or moods that aren't yeah well that when we were writing music for the oprah winfrey show uh that's when um the publisher would say hey i need some happy stuff and uh i i called a list of emotional words and emotions and feelings and moods from all different libraries. I went on there and they would list all these keywords. And I thought, well, okay, I had this big list of hundreds of emotions, words mm -hmm. to describe emotions. But it was too much because it wasn't um, grouped, you know, in those categories. So I made up a list for all the composers who were working for Oprah. It was like 50 at the time, maybe 100 it grew to. And the publisher sent it out and it was um, positive neutral, negative, and it was just so much easier. But then we realized writing the book, a lot of people have taken that and, and used those and it's helpful, but there are actually slight differences. You know, there's a big difference between ecstatic and happy and glad. 
and then there's <laughs> you know, and then it goes from there. So that's how we did that list. So we happen to write happy music, but sometimes it's bubbly, sometimes it's sparkly, sometimes it's um, uh, joyous and joyful. So there are nuances, and if a music supervisor is saying, I need something really off the charts, happy, blissful, um, sunshiny, you go to the chart and you'll find those kind of words for that emotion. Well, and as far as the emotions themselves, uh, again, it's the research, in this case, reverse engineering of it. If you want your music to end up in whatever TV show, watch the show and and not just, I mean, there, there's genre. I, I think as, uh, as musicians, songwriters, composers, we think in terms of genre, which we do need to think of that. But when you think of emotion, think of the scene that's, that your music is going to uh, be used under. And, and what's nature, what's going on in the scene? I mean, yes, there is heartbreak and you need those emotional songs, but then there's uh, um, you know, getting back together again. There is... Um, and that would be hopeful. Yeah, and, and, and they're happy or, or being concerned or there's tension or, or, or you know, something bad's about to go down. Um, all these different kinds of situations and pay attention to the, to the fact that those situations are coming up and how frequently they come up. And then the music that accompanies that and whether or not you, you, can, you, you have already written music that can fit that scene or if, you, if maybe you haven't done it before, but you think you can do it, give it a try. Let's, uh, let's talk about another urge that people need to learn to resist, which is I'm going to write a score within 90 seconds that starts out hopeful and then ends up joyous. Tell everybody why that doesn't work for editors and music supervisors. The secret is you need to have one emotion and stay throughout in sync music. Now, it can work in a, a listening song, it can work in score, it can work in custom music, but we actually think of a scene and write, and it's just our imagination. We'll think, okay, someone is having a great day and everything, they're in a park or whatever, and we'll write the piece of music to fit that and then stick with it. All of a sudden they don't jump off the bridge at the park, you know, they're gonna be so, <laughs> so it's, it's just sticking with that emotion. And some people but, don't like that. But well, if they do jump off the bridge, there's a different piece of music that's going to accompany that. They'll just finish this one, edit it, and then bring in the new piece of music. Right. So what they need to know when uh, they have a scene, they know the emotion, and they're gonna go to wherever they're gonna go to, production music library, sync agency, and they find uh, the piece of music that they want it needs to have that same emotion from start to finish. Um, and, and that can be a, a, a puzzling thing because you might think, okay, well, I'm, if I have my emotion and I have my little musical four bar idea, I just keep doing the same four bars for two minutes. No, because even though you're sticking with the same emotion, the key is to vary the intensity. Mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's, you know, suspenseful, get a little bit more suspenseful, get a little less suspenseful. Uh, it, it's building, changing, adding things, taking things away, changing what things are doing. Uh, changing octaves actually works very well too. Yeah, and doubling instruments and taking out. That's, those are some tricks, and we that in the book. There are some audio samples in the book too that, that, that are really good examples. Of yeah, I, I want to mention to everybody that this book right there um, has QR codes in it so that you can actually just zap the code and hear the song that they're talking about, which is a huge help. Um, you know what, let's talk about that. Uh, I've got a question written in here somewhere, so I'll just pass on it when we get there. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but um, 
one day my jaw, I was aghast when somebody said to me, Michael, you're always saying developmental arc. And they took that to mean a literal arc, like the, the arch in St. Louis. Um, not like a story arc in a movie or a story arc in a book. An arc isn't literal, meaning, you know, up and down in an arch shape. Um, arc means that it's going somewhere. It's not laying there like a lox. And you just started uh, addressing this issue, which I'd like to talk about more, which is there's this constant wrestling going on with uh, either library owners, taxi screeners might say, I really like the melody. I like the vibe of this. It's really a cool PC you've done. However, it doesn't really go anywhere. It get you know, on one hand, they want you to pick a motif or a melody or whatever and stick with it throughout because it's got to be one thing from beginning to end. But you're absolutely right. It needs to either have uh, development uh, by possibly you know, going up an octave, um, but more likely it's adding instruments, you know, define it when it starts, drop it down to a skinny version, build it up over four bars, four more bars, build it up more, four more bars, build it up more, and then drop it back to something that's kind of like a bridge or once again, a very skinny version of the production and arrangement, then build it up, build it up, build it up, and boom, out with a big finish, exclamation point on the end. Um, people are really tortured by the fact that on one hand they're getting the advice it needs to be one thing from beginning to end on the other hand they're saying make it do something so i think your advice is well taken any other um, tricks of the trade that you want to offer up to keep things interesting without getting off the emotional aspect of the arc or the mood or um, the motif of it well, one of the things uh, that is in the book, uh, we have several pictures of waveforms, which is the, the audio wave. So when, when something, uh, when, when the piece of music is soft, small audio wave, and then when it gets louder, it gets bigger. So we have some uh, uh, pictures of those in the book, and you can listen to audio so you can get the correlation. More and more, when you go to production music library website, they have the waveforms too. And you will notice that most of the time, it's not really soft all the way through, or it's not really loud all the way through. It starts off soft, then it gets louder, then it gets softer, then it gets louder. Um, so there are different ways of achieving that. Obviously, that's it's, it might seem like, well, I'll just make it louder and softer. It's not just louder and softer. <laughs> I don't prefer the words louder and softer. I prefer to use varying intensity. And you can do that, as we said earlier, by um, adding instruments, doubling instruments, uh, taking them away. Yeah, and and uh, you know the the breaks. It's it's hard to really hear that unless you listen to an example. So that's why we put the examples in. And music supervisors look at the waveforms. They really do. It's funny. They, just last night, right before I sent you these questions, and then again starting at seven this morning, I was editing the interview I did at last November's Road Rally with Laurel Ostrander, who's one of my favorite editors. Um, she's such a great teacher and she was a story editor before she became a video editor. So she really gets like the overall picture and understands what makes music really work. So I love having her at the road rally. And I asked her that very thing. Um, I think it was the day before we spoke for five minutes. I said, by the way, I kind of remember when I had you on stage in 2017 or 18 or something like that, 
that I asked you if you looked at waveforms. And she goes, no, no, that wasn't me. I don't look at waveforms. Anyway, during the course of the interview, a couple days later, she goes, I want to correct myself in so many words. Now that I mention it, or now that I think about it, I actually do look at waveforms because I'm looking for building intensity. I'm looking to see if there are any obvious places where there's a, a hole that I can edit. Um, and, and so they do, they, they literally, I know one person in particular who literally won't even hit the play button until he's looked at the waveform first. And musicians, of course, would be really hurt by that. You mean to tell me I was taken out of contention? contention? without them ever listening to the music, that's just so wrong. But they know, they know because they do it every day. It's like a photographer knows their f-stop without using a meter most of the time because they've done it a zillion times. So it's really um, interesting to me that something visual has become an auditory cue, if you will, but it's, it's yeah. a, a tool that has earned its place in their world. Um, do you have any advice because you talked for a moment about creating stuff in the blind and we're talking about emotions and overall vibe so scoring the picture seems kind of easy to me but uh, i'm probably wrong about that but you know uh, the the composer is sitting there they're watching video let's say it's a, a two-minute scene and, and they see okay the car pulls into the driveway the husband and wife had an argument the husband gets out starts yelling and pounds his fists on the car slams the door as he goes in the front house and the wife just throws her hands up in disgust okay you've got all those emotions and visual cues to work with so you kind of know where to go whether or not you make the director or producer happy is another story with library music you are operating in the dark in the blind you don't know how it's going to be used. So you have to create something instrumentally that's universal. It could be used in almost, or at least many kinds of scenes about anger. It could be used in many types of scenes about embarrassment, many types of scenes about puppies or kittens playing with each other and doing silly, cute stuff. How do you learn to write for broad potential uses within a mood or an emotion without having visual cues or script to work with? That's a really great question. And we personally did not know that answer until we met someone at the taxi rally who was a music supervisor. We knew him from uh, seeing him around town. We got to kind of know him and we asked him if we could, play, you know, give him some music. And he said, hey, come to my office. And he was at Fox Studios at the time. So we did. And we were so scared. We were so nervous. <laughs> I <laughs> love he it. He was a very intimidating guy. You know, and he, he was very well known at the time. And Is his so first initial J and he's really tall? Well, uh -huh. nobody's, yeah. nobody's tall standing next to you guys because you guys are both tall. But we're talking about the same guy, right? He was yeah. very intimidating. And yet he was the nicest person and became dear friends with us um, over the years. But he sat us down in the office and he'd get these phone calls and say, what do you want? <laughs> Call me back later. Boom. We're going, wow. And we were literally shaking in his office. So he plays <laughs> our music. <laughs> but he turned out to be the nicest person and, and just a sweetheart. Really helped us. Changed our lives. And he would listen to a song and he'd say, no, nah, I can't use that one. Listen to the next song. Oh, oh, I could use that in a scene. Okay, yeah, that's good. Next one. Oh, yeah, that's that's good. I like that. Good mix. It's uh, Next one. Oh, it's a little muddy. Can't really use that one. Okay. Then there was kind of like this almost chariots of fire one we did. 
<laughs> and he listens to it and he goes, hmm, wow. Oh, I could use that one. It sounds, I could use that for like runners running in slow motion. We're thinking, well, okay, that's kind of on the nose. But and then he said, oh, it could be used for a funeral or a memorial, like some sports legend just passed away. And I could put that under there. And, and I, he said, oh, or I could use it, you know, and he's naming five or six different scenes. And we said, and he goes, you know, I'm looking for multiple placements. I'm looking for that cue that I could drop in anytime and I need it for sad or emotional or just something kind of dramatic. And that changed our lives because we said, oh, now we get what they're looking for in music libraries. It's different yeah. with and with score, obviously. But that was life-changing advice, how we now think about, can it go in this scene and can it be in a chase scene? I'm or so it... glad you brought this up because yeah. what if you're dealing directly with this, and that supervisor had a library, I'm guessing, and, and was looking for stuff for his library, not for shows, because what they look for for shows or films is different than what they look for in a library. In a library, they're looking for stuff that can where they can maximize the number of times it's licensed. So they yeah. need it to be broadly universal for many emotions, but the, those things are obvious when you hear it. And, and I'm glad that he went through that exercise with you. It, it was so nice of him to do that. So we learned a lot just from, from how someone else hears your music and how you, you have to imagine the scenes in your head. So that's what we do now. And, and we write collections, so we'll do 10 or 12 at a time, and each one's a little bit different. Some are slower, they'll, they'll have a slow tempo, a mid-tempo, a um, kind of faster tempo, and a really fast tempo, and then we'll play around with keys. And, uh, time signatures. Time signatures. Right. Yeah, um, but keep the instrumentation palette kind of similar, so it's not too off the mark, but, but different enough. We don't like them to sound all carbon copy that's not the point it's it, it's in case they need something a little faster okay they're oh i can use this one and then now i need something really fast but i need sort of similar so it we, we really enjoy that writing collections and it's a challenge because the first two kind of are awful you know you, we go oh, we don't have any ideas and then you kind of get in a zone and then mm -hmm. by the time you get to like number 10 or 11 they're starting to sound the same it's like okay we'll just do one or two more <laughs> that's it you know, I had a music library owner uh, send us an exasperated email um, that became a bit of a thing around the office here. And, and he was, he said, man, the music I get, this is a, a video editor, a top notch, like a top 10% are on reality shows, video editor that also owns a music library. And he gets the producers of the shows he works on to use his library. And he's stocking that library almost exclusively from taxi members. And he sent us an email saying, you know, I love you guys. The quality of the music I get from your members, everything about it works. But some of your members just don't get the business side of the business. And like, what do you mean by that? Because obviously you guys have been around long enough to know that we go to great lengths to educate our members on the business side of things. Not just, it's not just about opportunities. It's about knowing what to do with them when you get them. And he said, I've had people pulling music out of my catalog, which is non-exclusive, because they had uh, an exclusive library say, I want your stuff. So they would pull it out of my library. One of the people, I'm 
making this number up, but it's in the ballpark. It was like pulled 21 things out or 61 things out. It was a chunk of tracks. And, and the library owner had to re then reach out to everybody who that library went to and say, can you please remove the tracks from John Doe, his let's call it 41 tracks uh, out of your libraries. And of course, those those companies have this stuff in their edit bays already, and they're scratching their head going, why do I want to continue working with this company if they can't keep the music in their thing, in their catalog? So while the member was within their legal right to in a non-exclusive deal, say, you know what, I want to take it out of there. Um, or they could have licensed it, or you know, could have signed it elsewhere as well. They missed the point that you just brought up, which is you've already got a similar palette. You've already like cracked the ice and you're doing this kind of cue. Why didn't that person, rather than yanking 41 things out, say, you know what, if you like that, I'm actually six months better than I was when I did that. I can make you your own collection of 41 tracks. And that way the, the taxi member would have been using their noggin and they would have music in two catalogs. So uh, yeah. you just have to be aware of your own shtick. You know, if you've already got the palette and you already have the chops, why not use it again? You know, that was a great point, Michael. And I think what's really important for all of us as composers and songwriters, and we have kind of a fear that we can never do this again. <laughs> I know it would take us three or four weeks to write a cue, an instrumental, not even a song. And we were just laboring over it and, and just wondering why is it taking so long and it's perfection, but also you feel like I can never do it that again. That, that was just, but you're right. You do grow and you do get better. And pretty soon we listen to stuff a year later going, wow, that was terrible. You know, we can do much better now. And if you have that mindset, we can do better. That's our mantra. We can do better. We always challenge ourselves to do better, learn more techniques and listen to pop songs and, and just try different things, but do better. Uh, that's a, I think that's part of the problem. People get, get afraid. And I also want to say we pulled two songs a long time ago out of one um, sync agency and we regretted it the minute we did it. And it was for a major publisher wanted it, the artist wanted it, and, and then the artist kind of blanked out and didn't even pitch it, give it to the publisher. And we ended up it's still a dead song, I, I, and we felt terrible because it kind of affected the relationship we had with yep. this other sync agency, and it's never been the same, and we feel terrible about it, and that was years ago. Oh, and we have to remember that it is a relationship business. Yeah. It's not about, okay, I signed these songs to this library, I'm done. Well, no, that you're just getting started. Ideally, you want to sign more songs to this library or sync agency and sign with other ones as well. But if you do something to make yourself hard to work with, like pulling tracks or or maybe you didn't have all the, all the, the metadata together you, or you just something was you didn't deliver what they asked for. They asked for um, six, uh, 24 bit and you give them 16 bit, whatever. Um, make yourself easy to work with. And and yes, you have to look out for yourself. I, I, I get the, the, the feeling of, oh, I'm not sure if I can do it again. So let me pull those tracks. But then when you look at the whole picture, and say, if I do that, I'm going to make myself hard to work with. And this library that I just pulled these 41 yeah. tracks might not sign any more stuff from me. No. Why would you burn that bridge? And not only yourself. might they not, they, they might not sign anything, is when they're putting together their pitch list of stuff, that their playlists they're sending out when music supervisors contact them, they might think, 
Ah, screw those people, man. They burned me by yanking stuff out of the library and embarrassed me because I had to reach out to, you know, 50 different production companies and editors that I routinely work with. So, yeah, is your stuff going to make it on that list? They might, they might not, you know? I mean, you would think that they would always revert uh, to the best music for the pitch, but I think sometimes they're their ego or their you know their injury their mental injury of like man those people really screwed me on that um yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. um uh, you know you brought up an interesting point that led me to one of my other questions that i i wrote which is a lot of new composers get frustrated because they're told that's pretty good you know, it sounds like a typical dramedy cue or a typical tension cue or whatever. It's fine, but there's nothing special about it. There's nothing that makes it better than a dozen other cues that we've already got in our catalog. We don't need 13 or 14 or 2300 of that same thing that's all the same. So how do you create cues that are newer, fresher, better, and somehow more tantalizing that libraries would want to sign or that supervisors would want to use or editors would want to use. How do you create those without going so far over the line that you've created, let's say, a, a dramedy cue with um, chainsaws? <laughs> That's a little absurd, but you know what I'm saying. Stuff that just takes it a little too far and it's no longer a dramedy cue. You know, it's like, they want fresh and new, but they don't want anything too fresh and new. How do you guys accomplish that goal? Well, we've certainly had hits and misses, and we've done experiments. Um, we've had every single song signed, except for maybe two or three songs that are still in the wings uh, for various reasons. But I, I think it's just, you can try different things. We did a bunch of Swamp Tracks uh, collection we pitched it to every library in town. They just did not even want to listen to it. And people are like, ah, it's terrible. I don't even want to listen to it. It's not going to get used. We finally found one library. They took it kind of, oh, yeah, we'll take it. And then for some reason, it just blew up and took off. And those things get used all the time. So we were kind of, not that we were ahead of the curve, but we just thought, well, we kept seeing these reality shows and we'd hear it on Dateline in 48 hours. You know, they'd use like with a dobro or something. And I thought, we, we have to do some of these. And now they get used all the time. So sometimes you're just really ahead of the curve and people just don't want to take a chance on it. And oh, you promptly I'm called up the other 10 libraries and gave them <laughs> Yeah, one of them I really wanted to <laughs> But another uh, thing to try uh, as far as trying to make yours uh, whatever the genre is, your your you know your your you, your chainsaws are in the shop and you can't use them on your dramedy cue, and um, and you want to do something different. Um, we we've actually had a lot of luck with hybrids, mm -hmm. which is where you take you know, you have your core genre in dramedy and maybe you add hip hop beats to it or you add um, uh, something from another style. Put a, put a mandolin in there. That's not mm -hmm. a typical dramedy thing, but just you know just experiment creatively and try to get this try to convince the listener that this isn't a hybrid this is the way it's supposed to be mm -hmm. you know i mean because you can really be blatant about hey i've got this new and different thing and i'm trying to you know make these two things that are opposite fit together but there's a way to kind of sneak it in there where it's this something sounds different about this and it's cool but i can't put my finger on it that's that's what the hybrid approach actually uh, gets you and by the way, you're not you're not allowed to call them a uh, mandolin anymore. It's now like a people in or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a person in. <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, what were you going to say, Tracy? I cut you off with my bad uh, joke. Oh, sorry. Well, uh, we actually spent a lot of time researching genres. And of course, it's not every single genre because there's always a new one coming up. Um, and, and where is it? Could it be in this book? Yes, <laughs> it could. Actually, it's, it's in this book, too. Yes. And, then, <laughs> and um, by the way, we have the new gigantic, um, easy to read edition coming up pretty soon. <laughs> I'm going to tape that to the ceiling in my bedroom. <laughs> so I looked at the wow, this type is kind of small, but um, we had a lot of stuff to say. But we actually have a list of genres and subgenres, and sometimes people really don't know what genre they're writing in. But the purpose of that in the back of the book is to give you ideas that these are kind of the common genres. Now, as a, a little warning or caveat, we actually have commercial music, and the subgenre is genreless because <laughs> <laughs> before we want genreless well how do you tag that so um, it's kind of a joke we put in genreless um so check out those those genres because they're really important to know and you can mix them up and try a new, whole new thing you know it's i i gone. think that um genreless is something that applies again i'm in a unique position being the the creator founder and owner of taxi I see a lot of stuff that the other, the the rest of the industry, like a music supervisor, would rarely, if ever, see because the stuff from neophytes never filters up to them. And one of the things that is extremely common is people write in a genre that sounds like what they grew up with back when they fell in love with music. Well, unfortunately, James Taylor ain't a thing today, except for old James Taylor fans. Love him like I do, because I really do, but. You can't create music in that genre. It may come back someday, and that would be great if it did, but people write in this genre sounds like weak pop from the 70s thing, and then they wonder why nobody wants to use it. So I think your advice is well taken, that people should go look at your list of genres and then pick one and then write something and sit down and ask themselves and five other people, hopefully a few strangers and not your mom in there and say, is this a country song? Uh, no, it's not. It, it, what genre is it? I don't know. Well, that's cool then. It's universal. It's all genres. It's genreless. <laughs> but that, that's a problem that needs solving. It does, yeah. And Go ahead. That's something that um, songwriters and artists have a hard time with is yeah. that we, at first, we we don't want to put in the box. What I do is just completely different and it's my own original creation. Right. Um, but it's just the nature of certainly sync music. I mean, if you go to a production music library website, you can look up all different flavors of rock and hip hop and orchestral and country and bluegrass and and that because they need to categorize it and and they may say uh you know that there's a it's uh bluegrass but there's a touch of gospel in it or you know something like that yeah but um they need to have a, a main category to put it in yeah. and so we have to help them with that as opposed to making their job harder do you and ever feel go ahead oh, Tracy. sorry uh, that's why we do collections because when you do a collection it's easier for them to say, oh, okay, we'll just put it up on the website and see how it, how it goes. If you do one or two or three songs, that's not very helpful, frankly, um, to pitch. You've mentioned songs, you've mentioned instrumentals. What percentage of your work, uh, what percentage of your overall output um, has been songs versus instrumentals? Oh, 
tons more instrumentals. Um, well, probably ninety percent. Yeah, as a and yeah, yeah. Um, and which earns you more income? Um, and, and the obvious, uh, you know, the interesting balance is you might get a $5,000 sync fee for licensing a song for a big hit TV show. People kind of routinely get $2,500, $3,500. Whereas an instrumental might get, probably gets used on a reality show where you get no sync fee up front and it's all back in. So taking those things into account, where have you earned the most money over these years? Well, ironically, we wrote some song collections for a major production music library, and those get used all the time around the world. But they use the instrumental version. <laughs> I hear that all the time. Yeah, but uh, very rarely do they use the, the vocal, and then we yeah. work so hard on the lyrics well, with but our this co-writers. Is, this is the interesting thing, is that the question logically would be, well, then why didn't you just do the instrumental? Because if it was just the instrumental version, then whoever made the decision, music editor, music supervisor, may not have been interested. Basically, yeah. the song title, the vocal, the lyric draws them in. And then they say, hey, this is cool. I want to use this song. Let's use the instrumental version. Whereas if, if they didn't have the lyric and the vocal, they may not have been attracted to that instrumental version. It doesn't make sense, but it is true. Yeah. No, it, make, it makes perfect sense the way you just explained it. I, you should, you know what? Repeat that one more time. It actually deserves repetition. That sometimes when they're making a decision about which instrumental, and maybe they don't know if they want an instrumental or a song. They just need music to accompany the scene, and they will listen to songs, and they'll say, hey, this, I, I like this title. I like what it says, because that it, it, the, the lyric, the title, um, has to do with the scene that we're putting this music under. But but this is what happens too. The vocal is getting in the way. Is there an instrumental version we can use instead? Whereas if there wasn't any vocal there in the first place, they may not have ever even found the instrumental. So right, because they they think of instrumentals as like the trailer park. You know, songs are cooler and loftier, more artists, more emotional connection. Whereas instrumental music is like, oh, that's canned music from a library. So they go for the songs. You're so right. You, you are the oh. first person that's ever brought this up and said it like that in the show. So thank you, because you're right. It's putting the sexy outfit on it, if you will, to draw it in. And then you find out that the real heart of the matter is just that instrumental thing that works. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's funny, too, because we had this one song that we did with another taxi member, Steve Collum. He's great. And his, his wife, uh, Jessica, they did it. And it got uh, picked up by a BBC show. And it's used in this kids show. It's, it's such a cute song. And they loved it. And then all of a sudden, we, we heard it months later with completely different lyrics. And the little characters are singing it. And it was called... Um, uh, on your friend i'll bring like the sunshine no they, they changed it because yeah. it was called you bring the sunshine and they put i'll be your best friend right. so they changed all the lyrics and sang it and we were going what is up with that and they can do that in europe it's not a problem but it was wow. so funny they took the lyrics and made them very close to the original lyrics but it, and, okay. and how did that work out on a copyright uh you know an ownership of the song it can they can just rewrite your lyrics and that and they've got full license to do that and you don't get any more Read uh, your yeah, music library you basically give them the right to do that yeah. now they're not going to create a whole new work and cut you out 
and I don't believe no, I, no they, did, they didn't paid. take anything. They no. didn't take any part of the writer's share. But uh, it's a thing. Okay, so that's good. Yeah. You know what? Let's talk about this. I, I didn't have this on my list of questions. Honestly, the book is so good. Which book? Why that one right there is so good that I, I could have made three hours worth of questions. One of the things I left out was contracts. Um, so let's keep this kind of brief, but it's worth saying people, most musicians that aren't yet familiar with the sync side of the industry know about music publishing from what they learned from a book they read 30 years ago that says, keep all your publishing as long as you can and never give more than half of it up. And in the music library world, the normal contract, almost all contracts, it's like you, they, they, the library, get the publisher's share. You, the writer, keep 100% of the writer's share. If they make a buck, you make a buck. If there's a sync fee, you split it, unless maybe they advanced you a couple hundred dollars, maybe as much as a thousand dollars to buy out um, the right to, basically they're buying out the publishing and the master and they've paid you something up front, therefore they don't split the sync fees. But I think I've just described pretty much the range of most music library contracts, yet people are still so worried that everybody in the industry is out to screw them. I don't know if it's just old school thinking, if it's some form of narcissism that's not in any you know diagnostic and statistical manual, why is it the musicians think everybody is out to screw them when basically the contracts are if I make a buck, you make a buck? Seems pretty fair to me. Well, and that that yeah. that construct that that um, setup is is beneficial because if the publisher or music library doesn't have incentive to place the track because they're not going to get any publishing and they're not going to get any writer share, um, maybe they'll get a piece <laughs> of the uh, a sync fee if there is one then where's their incentive? I want them to be incentivized to place that track because they're going to make money. While they're making money for themselves, accidentally, they're making money for us too. I mean, yeah. that, that's like a, a, a better model that works out for the composer. Yeah, and it's typical in the production music world that everything is split 50-50. Now, some companies take a little more, some take some writer's share, and that's not so great, but that, no. but everything is different. Now, when you go to sync agencies, they can tend to be a lot more um, artist-friendly, let's just say, and songwriter-friendly, and they'll cut deals where they'll give you some publishing. We're in a couple where they give us half our publishing, which is really cool. Half of the, really? half of the publisher share plus your full writer's share. Exactly. Right. Which, and, which means three, we get three quarters of the royalties. Yeah, and then we're in one sync agency that we met at the taxi rally, and we just love them. They're so great. And uh, it's um, I think you know this person for sure because her grandfather was a very, very famous um, songwriter and was head of ASCAP back in the day. But she signed a lot of our music. They don't take any publishing, which is amazing. We were floored. We're going, don't you want our publishing? Because <laughs> we're not used to that. But then you have indie publishers, you have major publishers, you have major indie publishers. We talk about all the different types of publishers in our book. And, and it can be confusing, but all of them have different um, contracts and, and um, it, it just depends on the deal. And some people get lawyers involved. We had a friend, <laughs> he was going to be in a major film. He was so excited, he got a lawyer involved and it was so burdensome and the music suits I'm done, you know, goodbye. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I have other fish to fry and I don't have time for this. And he lost the deal. He was really, really upset about that. But all of them have different deals. 
and it just depends on your reputation and and um, your brand basically if it even comes into play if you're a band and an artist it comes yeah. into who's representing you so it's always different but they're not trying to screw us it's it's really just business they are working really hard they have relationships they have to be very careful about and they want to make sure we're all vetted and we sign the contract we keep our tracks and music in with them for however long usually eternity which is hard for some people to accept well in all honesty if you don't trust them don't sign with them yeah yeah. Well, there are some people who would sign with nobody because they don't trust anybody because they've held on to this, which I understand. Look, you know, 50 years ago, there were people in the industry that would screw, and primarily, frankly, African-American musicians that weren't very well educated about um, the business side of the business. And, and they did get screwed. Old labels, which I won't mention labels or the people involved, but, you know, I remember uh, I was working on a record for the first non-African-American act on a label that was well known for putting out African music made by African-American people, but it wasn't R&B, it wasn't soul, it was mostly disco at the time. And one of the acts they signed, they basically gave them $5,000 a year and a new car every two or three years. And they took 100% of the publisher's share and the writer's share. And I would talk to these guys outside the studio and go, dudes, you are getting so screwed. First of all, record labels generally don't take your publishing. A publisher would. But in this case, the president of the record label would put himself down as a co-writer and then take 100% of the publisher share and the writer share. And one day, one of the artists, who was also a writer, took um, a concrete block like you would build a warehouse with, <laughs> threw it through the windshield of the CEO's car in the parking lot. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other... Have you ever seen the movie Get On Up with uh, the James Brown story with Chadwick Boseman? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. But there yep. was a scene where he was offered the Cadillac and the shiny toy, you know, because I'd rather have the royalties, you know, frankly. Smart move. He was such a businessman. It was great. Let's shift gears and talk about networking. Um, you guys, I made a joke at the top of the show, but it was only partially funny, uh, or partially a joke, I should say. It wasn't at all funny. You guys are the king and king of networking. It, it, you'd be hard-pressed to go to any music industry event almost anywhere in the country, but especially on the West Coast, where you guys aren't in the room. And being that you guys are both pretty tall, you're easy to spot from across a room with 300 or 2,000 people in it. Um, I suck at striking up conversations. What you see here is not who I really am. I hate going to parties. I hate small talk. I love interviewing people, but man, take me to a party and it's like, I'm not the, so how about those Cubs? Not that guy. Um, you guys have some incredibly solid advice in the book. Which book? By the way, it's in this book right there. I'm gonna get so um, and tired of looking at it. <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I'm burnishing it into their brains. Um, <laughs> But, you know, look, people don't come to the road rally because they're afraid. What's it going to be like when I get there? There's going to be more than 2,000 people there. I don't know anybody. I'm going to look like a dork. I'm not going to fit in. I don't know how to talk to people. God forbid, like an industry person walks by me, and I know I'll be dying to talk to them, but I'm going to be scared to death. I think you guys have, first of all, you admit that you're both inherently shy, but you've learned how to get over it, certainly within the context of, of making industry connections. And 
you guys are so good at networking. Can you give our viewers today some specific, like a conversation starter and some networking tips? Absolutely. We, we really do talk about this in our book because we read a book by Dan Campbell, who's our hero. <laughs> and we mentioned him in the book. He wrote the foreword. Um, we read his book about networking in the new music business, and it changed our lives because we were doing so many things wrong, like throwing music CDs and recordings at people going, listen to my music. And he goes, no, don't do that. Never, ever do that. Um, just to give you an idea, these are just a few if you can wow. And uh, yeah. There's hey, there's a taxi one. Here's my taxi. Oh, there are several taxi ones there. <laughs> yeah, I gotta make it this way. Yeah, but I noticed in the picture in the book, there isn't a taxi one that I could spot in the crowd, so I need you guys to change the art on that, okay? <laughs> yeah, the second edition, I'll change it. And those were mostly Vance's badges. Those are just my badges. And those are not even dinners and lunches we went to. Um, um, I can't even tell you how much money we spent. And seriously, it was just total immersion because um, we we were super shy and we're tall. So I said we look like palm trees, you know, kind of sticking out. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. It's a branding thing, actually, but it works for you. Someone said, and and uh, we actually met a couple that was taller than we are. Um, they, this woman came to town, she's a songwriter, and she's six foot four, which is Vance's height, and her husband was, what, six foot nine or something, we said, oh my gosh, we're not the world's tallest couple anymore, thank you. Um, but, but what happened was, we didn't know what to say, and when you go to think, you know, and frankly, the taxi rally can be a little intimidating when you first go, because it's like, wow, there are all these people, and they seem to just love each other, and they're hugging, and, and you know, <laughs> talking stories and and we went wow we don't know any of these people and we're just sitting there and it, it was painful and then but we loved it you know we loved the 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 panels and everything but it we didn't know what to say and we would literally sit there and just kind of go what do we do what <laughs> and so we um decided after we read dan Campbell's book we needed to just get over it and it was total immersion as you can see with these badges we just went for it we went to every event we could find just to get over our shyness and it was really really hard <laughs> i recall um i think we, we were at uh, some publisher meeting and uh, a guy we had met uh, a taxi rally guest now retired music attorney steve Nagatsky. um the one, best one yes. yes for sure um i remember uh pulling him aside and saying you know steve i, did, I just don't feel comfortable here because that guy over there scored this big TV show, and that lady over there, she she wrote this big number one hit song, and they just have all these accomplishments, Oscar winners, Emmy winners, Grammy winners. Uh, we just don't belong here. And, he, he, and, and it's interesting, because Steve is a funny guy. In all seriousness, he looked me down and said, look, you guys belong here. You guys make music, and, 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 and so do all these people, and you are one of them. It's one of the few times I've seen Vance almost cry. Because <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. it, it just changed my perspective yeah. because then it made me realize, oh, yeah, or remind me, not realize, but reminded me that, yeah, we're all musicians. We all uh, have our favorite songs from high school. We, you know, guitar players have our favorite guitar, favorite guitarist. And you can just strike up a conversation in a room full of music people. You can strike up a conversation about anything to do with music. Yeah. What's your favorite song or uh, favorite album, favorite singer, whatever. And How did you get your start? Everybody yeah. loves talking about him or herself, and they know yeah. the story. How did you get your start? It, lu it lubricates the conversation. 
How yeah. did you hear about yeah. this event? Yep. Um, yep. We have all these questions in our book because you're right. You just need to break the ice. And at the taxi rally, we would look at someone's badge and, you you know, you have the city and the state. And we go, oh, you're from Oklahoma. We have a friend there. And then we'd see our friend and, you know, introduce them. And they're best friends now. You know, it's just it's how it works. And it's, it's I, I grew up with a dad, I, I say this sometimes, he hated the word networking. So I thought it was like this dirty, awful word that you never use. He just thought it was awful. And it turns out it's just making friends. It's just saying hi. And the oh, that's hard that, for a lot of people. It, is, it was hard for us. And um, I, I think one of the questions we always say to people, we'll see someone in the elevator and we say, hey, is this your first taxi rally? And we'll get, oh, no, I've been to 10 of them. And, oh, we've been to 20 now or whatever. Wow. And, the, and it's a nice breaker. And, and sure enough, then you see the person again in the lobby or at a panel. And, oh, I remember you. And, and you've probably you seen them in, in the chat room on Taxi TV and gotten to know them yeah. there. And you've yeah. seen them on the forum. And now you're seeing them in the flesh and you're already old friends. You know, honestly, um, at the last physical road rally, the gentleman who handles the selling the sponsorships for the taxi road rally, who used to be an associate publisher at Billboard magazine, has been around the industry a long, long time, knows whereof he speaks, and he came up to me and he goes, your registration line is too long. I can't believe people have been standing there for three hours. And I said, we do that on purpose. He goes, what? He was literally mad at me. I said, we do it on purpose. He goes, nobody wants to stand on a line for three hours. I said, oh, some of them have been here for eight or 10 hours. They got here at six o'clock in the morning. He said, why do you do that? And I said, because they've made best friends for life before they even got their badge. That's the hallmark of the Taxi Road Rally. It is the best networking, I think, of any of the events out there because uh, one, of, one of our members was standing in line next to a publisher, a music library owner, didn't know it, ended up chatting for hours. They shared a beer or whatever in line and the guy ended up signing like 108 or 112 or 118 pieces of music into that catalog because he was standing in line. Funny enough, the library owner should have never been in that line. He should have gone to the industry person to get his badge, but oh well, serendipitous. Um, well, well, another thing to think about when it comes to networking, and this I remember, we learned this at the taxi rally from Cliff Goldmacher. Cliff yeah. Goldmacher was talking about networking, and I'm gonna paraphrase here, that one of the things that can help you with networking is put down the damn phone. <laughs> No one's going to come and talk to you if you're on your phone. Yeah. Put it yeah. away yeah. And, yeah. And, and approach people, approach somebody else, yeah. start a conversation. Because uh, if you ask somebody, uh, what's your favorite song or your favorite singer or songwriter, whatever, they're going to have an answer. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be very happy that you asked. Yeah. And, and Dan Capel said, find the person who's not talking to anybody and go over and talk to them. And we have met lifelong friends from doing that, like Pinka Koneva. She's in our book. She was just standing at a, a conference and we went up to her and said, hey, uh, have you been to this conference before? She goes, no. And it turns out she had these amazing credits. It just blew us yeah. away. It was so humble and quiet. And she is. Friends. <laughs> she came up to me at an industry event and said, Michael, I don't have anybody to sit with. Can I be your date? And I thought that was so sweet. And we sat together. I don't know her very well, but we've always had, I mean, she's the kind of person where you meet her and three minutes later, you feel comfortable, maybe 30 yeah. seconds later. And she literally felt like she needed to be sitting with somebody because she didn't want to be seen sitting alone at this very big deal event. 
So yeah, it was her date for a couple hours there, and we sat there and rolled our eyes when the people on stage were full of it. <laughs> yeah, we've done but, that many times. <laughs> and uh, many people have been friends. We did that in line waiting for the taxi lunch uh, the first time we went, and uh, that's happened a couple of times, and they're lifelong friends. We've uh, written with one, and, and our songs get used all the time now, and it's, it's, it's amazing. And we really sincerely thank you for the community. Um, we proudly display this on our mantle, and it, <laughs> we got the Community Leadership Award in 2012, and it always sits on our mantle. It's the only award we've got. You, you, you guys deserve it. You are community leaders. You've done a lot. You know, I see a guy in the chat room, and it really irks me. Uh, Del Johnston, I want you guys to answer this, not me. But people, you know, it's this kind of misinformation. Dale Johnson says, plus, when you go through guys like Taxi, they claim publishing rights to your music, basically taking half your money while charging you fees to let them take half your money. Is that true or not true? I've never heard of that. No. I mean, there's a fee to submit a song for a list. But we don't take half your publishing. No, no I've never heard of that. I, I don't know where people get this information. They claim your publishing rights to your music. Taking half. There are some companies that do that or something similar to that, but, but and we're not interested in those companies when we find out that that's their model. I mean, uh, one of the things that, one of the many things that's so beneficial about Taxi when you submit and you get a forward and you actually get a deal is you now, it's Taxi's out. You mm -hmm. have an open line of communication with the, the production music library owner, licensing agency, music supervisor, and, and, and it's up to you to either uh, make the deal or, or you know, cost yourself the deal. But it's in yeah. your hands at that point. Yeah. Taxi has only gotten publishing one time in 30 years and hundreds of thousands of deals that have probably happened. I mean, certainly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. We, we don't know because people don't even have to tell us when they make a deal because we don't negotiate it. We don't sign the paperwork with anybody. We get nothing. Um, and the one time we got publishing on something was the publisher came to us and said, I never would have found this without you. I would like to gift you a piece of the publishing. Wow. Uh, which I was very grateful for, and it ended up the. It was a song that ended up becoming a number one hit. So oh, wow. it put a kid. The songwriters yeah. still got all the money that they. Right. Yeah. Gotten. They'd signed their deal yeah. with the publisher a year before. Literally a year later, the publisher said, "You know, every time I see your face in my mind's eye, I think I wouldn't have this song that someday is going to be a hit." without you guys doing what you do. And I'd like to give you some publishing. And I said, I don't know, we've never asked or taken publishing from anybody. He said, it's coming from me. My deal with the writers is done a year ago. It doesn't cost them one penny. And I said, yeah. okay. The publisher probably regrets it to this day because the song was a hit. And it literally paid for one of my kids to go to college, but wow. yeah, I thought it was a nice gesture. And, and yeah, the, yeah, the member was not affected. Um, yeah. car. <laughs> yeah, you know that that happens in Nashville. Some people they gamble or anywhere they'll gamble away a, a publishing deal or something. I mean, or they have to pay off a debt or have to sell a catalog or whatever. There's crazy deals out there, and everything's different. It's just what you're comfortable doing. And if the publisher was comfortable having you have a piece, that's great. That's that's an honor. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm. We've got 15 minutes left. Uh, I'm going to eliminate some of my questions here so we can get more time in with the audience asking you questions. Um, oh, um, 
etiquette, music business etiquette, specifically as it applies to the production music library business. And just for people who may be new at this and don't know, production music library is basically a music publisher that specifically works in the music for media side of the industry. Rarely, if ever, would they pitch a song to a major artist on a major record label. It's almost always film, TV, video, games, YouTube, that sort of stuff. So all that said, there is kind of a, an unwritten book of etiquette. You can't be a putz, you know, you, you can't do stupid stuff. Um, and people think, well, I wouldn't do anything stupid, but people do all the time. I know because I'm this neutral guy in the industry. I'm not beholden to anybody. And these library owners call me <laughs> at night and tell me, you would not believe what this bonehead just did. I'm never working with that person again. And I just sit there going, my gosh, we do taxi TV, we do the road rally, we do the newsletter every month, all this stuff to educate people about the etiquette. Um, a library owner once said to me, yeah, this guy's got great music some of the best I've ever heard for television. And, and I'm thinking of a particular member. You guys probably knew that member 10 years ago. Um, I'm not gonna sign him. And I said, why? And he said, because I signed one song already when you first introduced us like a month ago. He is so much work, so much brain suck that I can't afford to have this guy in my catalog be having to answer four phone calls a day from this person, oh. complaining about stuff, asking questions. Can you listen to my thing while I'm in the middle of a, you know, putting together a pitch list right now? I know, but I need an answer right now because I'm trying to decide, should I write the lyric like this or like that? Tell me now. And, and the library owner said, I can't sign him because he's too much work. So can you guys give us kind of a five minute course on the etiquette of dealing with production music libraries specifically, um, and, and then we'll open it up for uh, questions in the, in the chat room. Well, we touched on it earlier. Make yourself easy to work with. Um, the, these are very busy people, and they don't have time to explain the way the music business works to everybody they <laughs> sign. As soon as they realize that, and, and it's kind of a catch-22, but they want to work with people that have already done this, mm -hmm. uh, but, which makes it very difficult for, to get your first deal. But, um, and I think perhaps there might be some people who, even though they have several deals, are still difficult to work with. They haven't figured it out yet. But you do yourself a favor when you make yourself easy to work with. Um, don't bug them too much. Ask reasonable questions. Um, and just don't ask too much of their time. And, and uh, get them to communicate to you what they need from you. And then, uh, if it's a list of this is what we want delivered, you know, wave files, uh, 2448, uh, do, do the uh, stems and, and uh, alternate mixes, okay. all those kinds of things. They tell you what they want delivered. Um, you have, if there's something that's unclear about that, then, then you can ask them. But if they told you, if, if they, if you ask them a question and it's on the handout that they sent to you, then you just make yourself hard to work with. Yeah. yeah we they we have a phrase, you have to be a figure outer to do this. You have to figure it out. And I, I can't even believe sometimes some things that people do and ask us when it's right there on the website or, you know, it's an instruction, read the instructions. It's just really that simple. And if you can't figure it out, maybe this isn't quite the business for you or, or ask your ask your fellow members on the taxi forum yeah. ask people that you've met at the road rally they're probably signed with that company hey yeah. he said this what do i need to, how should i do that and what's yeah. the difference between 16-bit and 24-bit well exactly. dude there's this 
Yeah, new thing on the internet. It's called Google. <laughs> well, that's really why we wrote the book. It's not just for music creators, but it's for music users too to go, hey, I don't have time to explain this to you. Just buy this book. You know, frankly, absolutely they have as well, because they get bombarded with composers. And I think, especially in the past two years, it's been really desperate. We've had people reaching out to us asking us for some extra work and stuff. And we say, hey, we're in book mode. We can't do that. It's just too crazy right now. But it's hard and it, it kind of dries up sometimes. We've had libraries that we have a great connection. We've written a ton of music for them. They got a ton of placements and all of a sudden, boom, a year later, nothing. And that's happened with our friends too. It's not just us. Things oh, dry yeah. up like a gold rush, you know, and you're hitting oh. the vein, you're getting all those nuggets and all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it, it could be. That's why I always tell people don't the people want <laughs> this. I can't say it's too inappropriate. Um, don't marry the first girl you kiss yeah. uh, because uh, people have this situation. Where, you know, oh, they love me. They love my stuff. The library calls. They're all enthusiastic. They sign a collection of 10, 11, 12 things. They love me. And now you start putting every genre you do, whether it's right or wrong for their clients, into their catalog, and you're going to hit a dry vein because they, they love your music, but they don't have anybody that needs that music. Or maybe a show just ended. You know, uh, maybe you used to get a lot of stuff in Ozark. Just ended, season four, last episode. So now that library might go through a dry period because they had a regular user of their music and now they got to find, you know, whoever the music soup was on Ozark, jump ship to another show and it takes them six months to get up to speed. But yeah, hills and valleys, happens, baby. Yeah, it happens all the time. It really does. And uh, editors change, music soups change, production companies change. And we've had some that were just killing it and all of a sudden, it, it, it just yeah. dried up. Don't put idea. all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. yeah, good idea to have a diversified catalog where you have songs and instrumentals signed with production music libraries and sync agencies, some exclusive, some non-exclusive, uh, and, and different ones. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you've got 100 instrumentals, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's not, not our strategy to sign it with one library. If you can yeah. get 10 signed with this one, 20 signed yeah. with that one, you know, spread yeah. it out over five, six libraries. And let's face it, we all need validation. And it's really flattering when some library asks, oh, I love your music. Let me have 100 tracks. We knew a friend of ours put 300 tracks into this very tiny new library with this woman, and she skipped town. And then she sold it to a company. No one made any money. And he was devastated. He wanted all that music back. He can't get, he's still fighting for it. Years later, it was like 10 years ago. And we kept telling him, don't put all that music in there. Give her 10 or 20. And for some reason, she just loved his music and fed into the, you know, the, the validation uh, syndrome, we call yeah. it. And she probably wasn't being evil. It was just a bad, you know, bad of her to ask for that much and bad of him to think that she could use it all. Well, all right, let's hope. So she just wanted to build a catalog. Yeah. It happens, you know. Um, Careful. <laughs> let's open it up to... Oh, why did I say read off list on page 208? Let me go to page 208. If I made a note, it's probably worth mentioning. Oh, okay. 
this seriously between Appendix E, I mean, the whole book is great, but there's a list on page 208, a recap of what we discussed throughout the book. Do your research, be professional, educate yourself, accept feedback, create and meet your music goals, guard your creative time, be organized, blah, 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 blah. That list alone is worth the price of the book. So oh, I'm totally serious. I'm not just like plugging the book for you. If I didn't believe the stuff, I wouldn't say it. Anyway, anybody who's got a question, I'll go five minutes long if you guys are good to go to 535. Yeah, okay. And uh, let's, um, anybody who's got a question, type in the word question in all caps so it's easy for me to spot. Here's a question from Robbie Hancock. What was your play favorite placement so far and why? Thank you for today, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you at the Road Rally this year. Oh, hi, Robbie. It's good to not see you because we can't see the chat, but uh, it's good to have you there, and thanks for asking. You can handle this one. This is your favorite. Well, it, it, it varies. I mean, the fa favorite placement, I, I, I think, um, you know, some of the early ones because they were early, but I think more recently, you know, you, uh, everyone's music gets used in, in shows, various shows. You don't always know ahead of time. Um, right. And uh, a lot of times on shows that you don't even know. But for me, more, more recently, you know, we, we like watching Stephen Colbert. And at, at least three times now in the last couple of years, we're watching Stephen Colbert. And hey, that's our song. That's our song. And we didn't know <laughs> that it was going to be there. And, it's, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's still exciting, especially yeah. when it's a surprise like that. So yeah, it's, uh, especially on a show that we like. Yeah, they used it on these fake infomercials to start the show. And I actually put in the keywords infomercial not intending it to be a parody infomercial but it worked they found yeah it. and some editor sitting in a cubicle somewhere in that building types in um infomercial music and because your title had it boom right to the top yeah, it goes up. my favorite is uh, at christmas time i watched the food channel and uh, <laughs> for some reason the great cookie challenge i don't know why it's just mindless and it's fun to do like my keywords or something mindless while i have the food channel on and they always play a christmas song we did on every single episode and it doesn't pay very much it's terrible pay but it's just so cute to all of a sudden type and go oh there's our song again yeah. every year for 10 years or so a friend of mine who is pro has probably made more money in the music library industry than any other person, uh, living or dead. He's literally like the Clive Davis of libraries, and most people don't know him, but he was the very first person in the industry I met when I moved to LA in 1988, and we've been friends ever since. And he said to me, Michael, it's a penny business, but those pennies sure can add up. All right, yeah. next question. This is from Pat Wara. Hey, Pat, uh, what do you consider a great song title? Uh, for instance, what attributes make it great? They should be short. We do two words to three words, sometimes one word, but really two words with a good description. Uh, we have a carnival song or a circus song called Carnival Lights. And you can see Carnival Lights, you know, and it, it's a little Chris, uh, circus waltz. And that was used in a Miley Cyrus film called The Last Song. And we actually got an end credit for that, which is really very nice. unusual in the music library world but because it sounded like fun and bright and sparkly so i i think that was my one of my favorite titles yeah i've so, always go ahead vance stands out something that's a, a you know because cliche i mean just don't call it sad song number three um you know do, do a, a a twist on, on a cliche i mean if you just just call it you know my heart's broken again 
that's that's kind of boring too. I, although it's good because it gives the the whoever's going to listen to the song an idea of what the song is about and what the right. feel vibe is going to be. But some kind of of uh, of, of variation, some something that uh, is unexpected. Mm-hmm. That that describes it. It's got to telegraph what they're about to hear because they're pressed for time and they just want to scan a list of titles and go, oh, surf's up. That's probably a surf rock song. I should check that out. Versus, uh, I don't know, um, salty water. That could be anything. But surf's yeah. up tells you it's going to be like Malibu Beach and surfy or something. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, Katrina Seifert says, where do you buy the book? Amazon. There I answer. I saved you guys the work of answering that one. Oh, well, it's actually uh, all major bookstores. You can uh, get it on Barnes & Noble. It's a major publisher, so its distribution was really good. And you can see some. Uh, I'm going to go into promotion mode here because I haven't <laughs> been to the last hour and a half. Um, if you go to our website, heythatsmysong.com, you will find a link to to, to um, Amazon, but also several other bookstores that have it. Yeah, we put all the bookstores that have some kind of meaning meaning to us. Like, I put some from Massachusetts, where I was from, and I lived in Houston, so there's a Houston one. We love Nashville, so a couple of Nashville ones like Parnassus. So we put some indies in there, and of course some LA ones and San Diego ones. So that's and and Hawaii, Francis from Hawaii. Bev Niven wants to know, and this question, I thought I've answered a thousand times. I know Bev is frequently on the show, but maybe she missed that show. Is it necessary to learn to produce yourself, or does it work just as well if you hire a producer? Oh, that's a good question, because you need to own the recording and the composition in sync. In sync, there are two sides to every song and instrumental. Music libraries are not only a publisher, they're a label because they always represent both sides. And you have to either own it, so make sure you have work for hire and it's signed releases and you've paid for it and everyone's happy and understands. If you use a demo studio, you can get a little bit of trouble because sometimes they use studio musicians and sometimes you don't get a, um, a release from the producer and the engineer. It's really important to have that paperwork and everyone's paid and it's buttoned up. Or you could do it yourself, but it took us a long time to learn Pro Tools. But so you can learn. Frustrating. But you it's learn. so worth it. it. Yeah, it you is. Learn it. If, you can partner with people that already know how to do it and you can yep. do some type of barter system where they produce your track and maybe you sing on theirs or help them to, to write uh, a top line for one of their existing tracks. There are different uh, uh, arrangements and agreements that you can strike with people um, and whatever works, and even again, I, I, I'm, I really like the hybrid approach of, yes, you can learn to produce some basic things on your own, but maybe for the more involved productions, you partner with somebody else. But give it a try. I think a lot of people give up on the idea of recording their own stuff before yeah. actually giving it a try. We go into depth in the book of, about how to do that. About the Yes, you do. Um, and uh, how, how the, the recording mixing process works. Um, and there's a lot of information out there uh, in other sources as well. But yeah, but, yeah that part- Videos on YouTube are amazing. And, and you yeah. know what, Bev, yeah. to g- give a really short answer to your question, you will always be at the mercy of your bank account 
and that other person's ability to get you in. So if you get a call or an email at 6.35 p.m. Pacific time and a library or music supervisor wants to use your thing in a film, they're on the mix stage right now. The song they thought they could license for $20,000 just fell out of the deal. They need a replacement. Your thing came up. They love it. The director loves it. They want to put it in, but they need you to take out that one swear word in the chorus that it's in your hip-hop song, Bev, which I don't think you do hip-hop, I'm just saying. Um, and if you had a home studio and were good with your gear, you could run in there and take that word out, replace it with something clean. Uh, literally, the mix would already be saved because it's automated and get it back to them within the hour, probably within 15 minutes to a half an hour. You can't do that if you've done it in somebody else's studio. So that... That has happened to us, Michael. Yeah. We were um, in LA, ironically, and one of our publishers said, "Hey, I need this without that triangle thing," and we couldn't do it. We were that was different. We could have done it if we'd been home, but uh, you know, it's if I can learn how to use Pro Tools, just about anyone can, because it's it was so intimidating and scary for us when we first started, and there were no YouTube videos. But Bounce figured it out, and he taught me. And really, honestly, at the taxi rally every year, I go see Fat and I go see Ronan Chris Murphy, and I go to Rob Shirelli. I learned so much from all of those guys, and I'm so forever grateful because they're amazing. They're great, great teachers, and um, two of them are in our book, and we were just honored to get quotes from them because they're the best of the best. You know, they know what's going to get Rob high. He, he uh, big-timed us now. <laughs> but uh, they, you learn so much, and it's really not that scary. I got to tell you. Dollars, you have logic, which is great, you know. Wish we could have done that. <laughs> Rob is my best friend. We are literally like brothers, and we live four houses away. We haven't spoken to each other in three months. Oh, We're, wow. it's. I thought about him last night when I quit working. I think I sent you guys, you know, the notes for today's show, probably close to midnight last night, somewhere around there. And, and I went outside just to take in a little fresh air and look at the stars and, you know, do that a little bit. And I was looking down at Rob's house, four houses away and like slightly down a hill from me. I thought, how sad is it that we're both so busy that if I text him, and I know he's working at midnight, if I text him and said, yo, Rob, I'm out in the backyard, come out in your driveway, man, let's see each other's faces, he'd go, I'm sorry, I'm on deadline, I've got 32 more fixes to do, yeah. so sad yeah, but true. Well, he's a great teacher, I just love him at the taxi ride, he's so funny, he makes it super fun, he'll answer all your questions, you're not scared, you, you, it's not intimidating, but yeah. we've learned so much from him. Um, here's a great question from Stephen Elling, and this might be our, yeah, this will be our last one. How much equipment do you guys have in your studio? More than we need. Yeah. All you need to, <laughs> basically, because yeah. we didn't know when we bought all this stuff, but these days with, with the, the nature of, of digital audio, a laptop, a decent mic and an interface, that's, and it doesn't have to be three thousand dollar mic you can get a lot done with it with a, a two three hundred dollar mic some of our most used views were done on a sm57 or yeah. <laughs> sir, 
I, this yeah. is an Audio Technica 2020 USB. If you are just starting out and you have GarageBand on your Mac laptop or computer and you don't know what to do yet and you don't know what an interface is, buy this microphone for $99. It actually, wow. I'm an engineer by trade. That's what I know best, you know. And this is a really good sounding microphone. It sounds better when it points at you. Uh, <laughs> but and it, and it plugs right into your... Um, USB, it'll go right into uh, GarageBand with no interface. Buy that, and a, a one octave mini keyboard is enough to get started on. A pair of $100 speakers and maybe $100, $200 worth of some choice plugins, and you're good to go for now. Yeah, we're, we're kind of nerdy, so we love the plugins. I'm always looking at new stuff, and I drool over it because we really need new computers. They kind of age out after a while, but um, you know, Omnisphere is great, and we have Vienna. We have a lot of stuff that we don't really need, but we, you know, <laughs> we, we love it. We, we are, we're always experimenting with different things. But most DAWs, you know, we have Pro Tools. A lot of folks use Logic and, 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 and Cubase and Studio One. Yeah, or Ableton. They all come with the, the plugins that you need. You can get more if you want, but right. as far as processing they have what you need you can get mostly when when we're looking for plugins we're looking for virtual instruments we're always looking for more instruments but as tracy said we have more than than we could possibly use we have you know we have uh, a, a, a several synth plugins where it's got several thousand patches and you know i, I pretty much choose my favorite five and i keep yeah. using those not what you're supposed to do but it's what most of us do and yet if i see uh, a, a new synth plugin out there i'm drooling over it i want that thing yeah it's, it's a different back. Look where I was oh. about oh. three oh, weeks yeah. ago. Waves World Headquarters on oh. the other side of the planet. It couldn't have been any nicer. Um, all right, I've got to run. Well, we've got to run because we're over our 90 minutes. But guys, um, seriously, I, I'm not saying this because they're friends and I've known them for a long time and I'm going to sucker anybody into buying this book. I wouldn't have asked them to be on the show if I didn't know the quality of what they would write. This book is excellent. It's unbelievably thorough. And what does it cost? Like 25 bucks or something? 26.95 in the US. I think it's a little cheaper on Amazon. Um, it's worth, every, you'd be silly not to buy it. All you need is one thing you can use out of that book and it is well worth the 25 bucks you just spent. So anyway, um, let's see. What other stuff do I need to do? Um, told them where they can get the book oh no taxi tv a week from today because it will be memorial day in the united states and we're going to be not in the office that day but we will be back on monday june 6th with craig pilo who is our head screener at taxi and we are going to have him listen to your submissions to the show for instrumental cue reviews and we will let you know a few days before the show how to submit your material for possible inclusion in that um thanks for watching House on Memorial Day. What? <laughs> you need to go to Shirley's house on Memorial Day. Yeah, you know what? Actually, uh, we do like Fourth of July with the Shirelli's, New Year's Eve with the Shirelli. So yeah, we're that, that's what we know we can all get together because it's a holiday. Um, can, I, can I just say something, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Last, last week we were um, listening to Taxi TV, and that that, that music was insanely great. I, everything was syncable. It was amazing, and the quality was great. So listen to what other people are doing. 
they, and, and someone said, when did Taxi get so cool? Taxi's always been cool. <laughs> it's always been cool. But it's really amazing, some of the stuff. You could hear it on the radio. You could hear it on any of the top shows. I was so blown away. And there was one song called Sundress. And, I, and you I were just saying, and it was so great. So thank you for playing that. It, it helps people to hear what the quality is. And the bar is very, very high. It's very, very difficult. But keep hanging in there. That's what our book is about. It's hope. And it gives yep. you encouragement because it's so much negativity and down on, you know, no, no, no. But just hang in there. It will happen. And being around people that is a community, taxi community, really helped us over the years. And, and thank you. And they're all cheering for you. It, it yep. is amazing how when there's yeah. a little bit of success, yeah. everybody is, is, is there to pat you on the back and help you out. It, yep. it, it is it, the, the taxi community is an amazing group. Uh, and, and it stems from you, Michael. We, we yeah, appreciate what, what you've thank created. You. you don't take credit for it, but we're going to give you Yeah, so we're going to give you, you the applause. Uh, look. <laughs> the same one? No, 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 no. I own every one of these that was ever made. I used to have a box, like a shoebox yeah, filled with, I've got that one, yep. <laughs> well, it's funny, I bought this kind of as a joke for Vance years ago, and now we use it oh, all really? the time. And we had to block it out, because otherwise you get, you know. Right. <laughs> the bad sound, so we had to be careful with that. Hold on, where's... Funny. Uh, I can't find it anymore. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's, I held it up, held it up to the wrong thing. Yeah, baby, that'll get you arrested nowadays. Uh, <laughs> that'll get you. That's the the sound. That's what they play when Harvey Weinstein takes the stage to get an award. <laughs> Sorry, Harvey, that's not cool anymore. Anyway, um, thank you all for watching. Thank you guys for being great guests. Congratulations on writing a great book. Uh, if you are not part of this community, if you've never seen Taxi TV before, please hit the subscribe button. Please give us a like if you enjoyed what you learned today in the show. And we will be back again to see you on June 6th, Monday, June 6th, 4 o'clock. Tracy and Vance Marino, excellent book. Take care, you guys. Bye-bye.